Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. So it was even at the end, which is fine. I'm glad it's even. There's no money that changes hands. That makes me happy. But Alan was great. He putted great, Michael. He, he, putted always, like, he always putts great. He putted he like the Alan Bubis, who was, you know, who had to win the holes, and he did. He won the holes, and I left Gary in the lurch. How would you describe so, Gary's face when you pumped the second one out of bounds? <laughs> it's like I didn't look. Out. Let me just say, he was at my left. I did not look. <laughs> I just said, "Play hard, partner." That's <laughs> all I had. This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. So let me go right to an email from Eric McKelvey in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I have been in my life, and I took the ferry multiple times from Dartmouth to Halifax. Enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed Nova Scotia. He writes, as a longtime listener of the podcast, I've enjoyed the many interviews with Chuck Culpepper over the years, and I'm now a regular reader of his work. I'm grateful for his excellent reporting and analysis, especially on golf and tennis, but also for something a bit more specific. You see, every time Chuck appears on the podcast, it seems to me he speaks with deep appreciation for the conversation. This is especially true as Tony wraps up the segment, and Chuck, before he hangs up, gives a heartfelt, thank you so much, Tony. Words matter, but in this case, the tone in which they're said may matter more. So I guess this is a thank you for a thank you. Thank you to Chuck for reminding me of the importance of showing appreciation with a truly sincere thank you. And to Mr. Tony, thank you for your writing, for PTI, and for the podcast. You let us in on brilliant conversations, offer up unforgettable rants, and of course provide endless laughs. That's very kind, and I appreciate that. But it leads me into something. Now, let me just say, if you can access the Washington Post, just get it and read Chuck Culpepper's story on Serena Williams today. Because it's great. This is a game story. The hardest thing to write, being a newspaper sports writer, is a game story. It's easy to write features. It's easy to write columns. The game story, reporting on what just happened and stitching it together in, in a way that is appealing is the hardest thing to do. There's nobody who ever wrote for a newspaper who won't tell you this. Game stories, they separate the wheat from the chaff. And Chuck Culpepper is the wheat. He's the 100% whole wheat. It's a great story. And, you know, he's doing it. He's got a deadline. And he's stitching together wonderful phraseology. And he's giving you a look at the, at the kernels of truth in the Serena Williams-Harmony-Tan match, the way he sets it up. It's just great. And it gets me to something else. We did PTI Live yesterday. We rarely do that. I mean, rarely do that. Wilbon was off. He had a, an engagement in Las Vegas, and Pablo was on. And Pablo's great. He's just great. But occasionally, like we've done 21 years of PTI, and 15, 20 times a year, we end up having to do the last segment live because something happens between our taping when we end at about 5.20 and 5.30. And so the happy segment ends up live. And that's for timing issues more than anything else. Because we have to correct something. Something just breaks. We have to change. But I can't, I, I can't remember doing the first block live. I mean, I can. I'm sure we've done it, but it's been a really long time. And the first block would be the harder one to do live because it yes. is more extemporaneous there's speaking more, and back and forth. There's more stuff in it, more chance for a mistake. It is um, wider. It is not as confined as the other segments, and it's not written. 
you know, the happies, I write those. Right. And then the second person says whatever he wants. But there, there's a guide for that. The B segment, uh, the game segment or the guest segment, that's easy to do. That's easy to do. The first segment is hard. The three stories that you talk about. So we went live yesterday because on ESPN was Wimbledon. And the Serena Williams Harmony Tan match. And I watched a lot of Wimbledon yesterday because I watched Rafael Nadal. Rafael Nadal showed everyone in the world what championship DNA is made of. Now, I don't think Rafael Nadal can win Wimbledon. He hasn't won Wimbledon in 11 years. It's not his surface. He almost went out in the first round. And in the first round, you're playing somebody nowhere close to your ability. When you're Rafael Nadal and you're seated second, and he almost went out. He won the first two sets handily, lost the third, and he was losing the fourth. And had he lost the fourth, there's a real good chance he would have gone out. This way, you know, again, not his surface. He was down 4-2 in the fourth set and won four in a row and won them big, won them by wide margins. With all his crazy OCD behavior, he came up large in the moment. This did not happen to Serena Williams. And she's got championship DNA as well. Of course she does. Might be the greatest female tennis player of all time. Certainly in the conversation among the top three. You'd never have a top three and not put her in. You just wouldn't do it. Okay, so she loses the first set to Harmony Tan, a Parisian woman who I had never heard of, who I found out is ranked 115th. I don't know how old she is, but if she's not in her teens... If she's older than 23 and she's ranked 115th, she's unlikely to ever win a major. Nigel, you would concur with that, right? Absolutely. You know, because she's had, you know, she's, she's been around for a while. She's older than 23 and never ranked higher than that. So her age is important. And she was really good. She won the first set, I think it was 7-5. And the second set, Serena blew her out. It was 5-0 at one point. Serena lost the next game, but one after that. So it's seven five six one, And now Serena appears to be cruising. You know, it, it, it appears she's going to win. And she's up 4-2, to two, I think, at one point, and then her serve is broken, and then it gets into a tiebreaker, and it's a weird tiebreaker. It's, what are, you, what are you going to show me? She's 24. So she's unlikely to win a major at this point. I'd never heard of her at all. But she's very game, and she's moving Serena around, which is what you got to do. Serena hasn't played in a year. She hasn't played in a year. Her legs ache. Move her around. You can see between points, she's panting in the third set. But she's also great. She hits it 300 miles an hour. She can beat anybody. There's a 10-point tiebreaker. She goes out for love in the 10-point tiebreaker, and you think, okay, let's go. Let's go to work. This is going to end at about 525 or 515. We may be able to even take the ace, but it doesn't work that way. She loses the next five, I think. She ends up losing the tiebreaker, and it's a huge story because it's Serena Williams. It's her first time back in a year, and kids, it's possible. I'm not going to say probable. It's possible that's the last time she will ever play in Wimbledon, which is the most important tournament and her favorite tournament. It's possible it's the last time she'll ever play. And I think she'll probably play in the U.S. Open, but it's possible she could say, you know what? I'm 40. I don't want to go out in the first round at the U.S. Open. I'm done. It's possible. I don't know. She loses the match. It's a thrilling tennis match. It's truly thrilling. Um, Not because she lost, 
but because she gave everything that she had, and so did the other woman, Harmony Tan. I don't expect Harmony Tan to win this tournament. I don't. But it was really good. So it ends. It ends at about, I don't know, 528. We're geared up to go live now. It ends at about 528. We don't get on until about 533 or 534 because this is Wimbledon and you got to wrap it up and you got to send it to us. I just assumed we'd be on ESPN2 or ESPN News and we would have taped earlier. But they said, no, you can, you can do the show. Now, when you're doing the show live, I'll check my time here. When you're doing the show live, at least when I'm doing the show live, it's, I'm nervous. I'm still nervous. I don't want to say something wrong. I don't want to make a mistake. More than that, I don't want to say something that the people on Twitter are going to crush me for. I don't necessarily want that to happen. But we get through it, and we start, actually, we say, oh, we'll get to the Serena match in a moment, because she's third on our docket. Because we're a sports show. We're a general sports show. The Kyrie Irving thing's a bigger story to most people. And then that flows into the John Wall thing, which, you know, we'll ask David Aldridge about today. And then we get to Serena, and we don't really have notes. We're just talking. Um, Pablo did say one great, just so brilliant. Uh, the the um, Kyrie Irving quote about normal people, you know, get us through the day, but, you know, people who, who are different take us to tomorrow or whatever. And Pablo said it sounded like a cryptocurrency ad. It's just a brilliant <laughs> thing to say. But we're doing it live, and it makes me nervous. And I hope we did a good show. That's all I'm saying. I hope we did a good show. Because when it was over, there's a big exhale. Because you do the front end live, you do the back end live. The, the, the middle thing was taped, but that's a live show. You'll always know it's live because I will never get off the air without saying live TV ain't nothing like it. But I haven't had to say it in a long time, you know. So just for your information, if you like the show, it was live. If you didn't like the show, it's, it's probably because it was live, right? Yeah, I, I actually love when you give us these uh, these peeks behind the curtain as to how you guys do the production going into PTI, because like we're right with you looking at the clock. Yeah, like Eric Rideholm and Matt Kelleher are in your ear. We're going to have to go live. And then and then it's just a little bit different, because if, if there's a misfire with the equipment, if you're, if you're frozen, you don't have any, you don't have any idea. Yeah, no. On my end, I don't know what's going on on the other end. I don't know that. Fortunately, all the equipment worked. Fortunately, Pablo and I got through it. Fortunately, Pablo's brilliant, you yeah. know, and can be funny and can go back and forth and stuff like that. And we made it in the right amount of time. But it was, and I don't want to say it was nerve wracking. It's it's exhilarating, but it's scary at the same time. Sure, scary. Well, so, didn't didn't you do all those Sid Caesar shows live? No. Well, they did them. I didn't do them. I watched them. <laughs> yeah. I will get out of here. Who's first? David Aldridge. Is David first. Aldridge. When we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This, this is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Norwegian Soft Kitten. We just, it's just such a great name. This is a song called Parody and Triplicate. 
and Glenn Burgotz or Burgetts and Alan Green, who are Norwegian soft kitten, right? It's a mess. We had a few chords for the song, some words. Then we started recording. When we ran out of words, Glenn started making chicken noises and laughing. We were too lazy to edit that stuff out. In Glenn's defense, he'd already eaten a lot of cottage cheese the day we recorded small curd because Glenn has a discerning palate, so he was a bit loopy. Anyway, Alan threw in a quick bass riff and some drums, and we called it a day. Let's face it, we really phoned it in on this one. Sadly, Parody and Triplicate is still one of the better songs on our new album, so we're releasing it as a single. I just love that. Norwegian Soft Kitten. They play in David Aldridge. David Aldridge is now on working with The Athletic. And if you watch the PTI show, you will see that we, because we're newspaper guys, and we credit, you will see that we credit The Athletic, I think, David, more than any other news outlet. I really do. I mean, The Athletic seems to be on it all the time. And The Athletic was first, I guess, with the news that Kyrie Irving was going to exercise his $36.5 million option as opposed to taking a $6 million deal with the Lakers. Of course he's going to do that. Of course he's going to do that because he's, he's crazy, but he's not an idiot. Okay? Um, can you explain – the question is, can you explain Kyrie Irving? But nobody can. But can you explain your, your thoughts as to why he's there and what it means for the Nets? Well, uh, you know, it's – it's good news for the Nets in the sense that Kyrie is, is wildly talented. And certainly, um, I don't know that he's worth the trouble, but he certainly, you know, you understand why people constantly want to give him more opportunities on a basketball court because he is otherworldly. But there's a lot of baggage that comes with that, Tony, as we all have seen over the last few years. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, as you mentioned, we seem to all be shocked that the guy took thirty-seven million instead of six. I don't know why we're why we twisted ourselves into pretzels thinking that about that. But that's what Kyrie does because of his, you know, just clear desire to be viewed as a contrarian and a, and a deep thinker and, and somebody who's who's not, you know, doesn't go with the norm and does this in a very public job where he gets paid $37 million a year. So I'm not sure he's the best spokesman for the contrarian point of view. Most contrarians live under bridges, but but he does not. Um, But, you know, at the end of the day, he didn't, it didn't make sense for him anyway to go to the Lakers. If you really look at it, if you really thought about it, other than, reuniting with LeBron, but he's not reuniting with the LeBron he played with in Cleveland. He's reuniting with 37-year-old LeBron, who who can who is still a very good player, don't get me wrong, it's still a great player at times, but not the player he was seven years ago when, when Kyrie left. So, I, I'm going to credit Pablo with this, because we did this yesterday on the PTI show, and Pablo called it the nuclear option. It's not mm-hmm. just Kyrie. If Kyrie leaves... And Kevin Durant, for whatever reason, Kevin Durant is under the spell of Kyrie Irving, which he seems to be, because nobody in their right mind would leave Steph Curry for Kyrie Irving. Nobody. It's just not possible that the Nets might have faced, they might not care about losing Kyrie, but they would care about losing Durant. Do you, yeah. do you understand that relationship? I think, it, Tony, I think it comes down to those two guys are friends. They're friends. They're friends with each other, you know. How do you? How did you? How does your best friend become your best friend? I don't know. You know, they just, right, they just right, do, right? Right. You know, um, and so they are very close. They've become very close over the years. I think 
Kevin loves, and I shouldn't say loves, that's too strong. Kevin also does not mind kind of being viewed as a contrarian and somebody that, that goes against the grain and, and, and claps back against perceived enemies in the media and things like that, you know, so they all kind of live on this precipice of being outraged by whatever was on first take this morning, you know, and just like, <laughs> and so, okay, you can live like that if you want, but um, they choose to live that way. And so um, that's, so they, they're kindred spirits in that, in that realm. And so they wanted to play with each other, you know? And so, okay. All right. I mean, that's, you know, Steph, Steph and, and Katie were never close personally. And, and right. part of that was because Steph was married and had kids and went home, you know, like he didn't, you know, he didn't, that's he right. didn't hang out, he, you know? So that's part of it too. Um, it was just, uh, it was, you know, it was a, it was a functional relationship, but it wasn't a particularly close one. And so he wanted to be, he wanted to try and win a championship with a friend of his that was, that just happened to be one of the best point guards in the world, you know? So, um, that's, that's as much as I can explain it. Cause if I try to be a psychologist, it really not my, it's not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> I understand this. I mean, I think Kyrie is delusional. I love this quote. Normal people keep the world going, but those who dare to be different lead us into tomorrow. I have no idea what that means. And he also had a quote. Yeah, well, that's what I'm talking about. I'm this really, really deep thinker. And oh, yeah. by the way, I make $37 million a year. <laughs> the, other, the other quote is even better. When I say I'm, this was from April, when I say I'm here with Kevin Durant, I think that really entails us as managing this franchise together alongside Joe and Sean. Now, Joe is the owner, and Joe Sy, and, and um, Sean Marks is the Sean, general manager. He completely, Tyree Irving completely ignores there might be a coach. You know, no, he, he doesn't need coaches. He's going to manage the entire franchise. And it leads to this question, David, and I, I like you, he's the best ball handler at getting to the basket I've ever seen. He is. He's the best. Yeah. Yes. I can't trust him for 10 seconds. I would right. never feel comfortable trusting him, right? That is the problem. And that's the, you know, and that's why, uh, you know, a lot of people in the league scratch their heads because Kevin Durant is the ultimate baller. He wants to play all the time. He thinks, lives, drinks, sleeps, eats basketball. He loves the game. Like he wants people who love the game as much as he does to be around him and be in his spirit and his aura and his, and and Kyrie I think fair to one question how much Kyrie really loves playing basketball yeah. because he seems to go to great lengths to not play it voluntarily by the way not not because he's injured or anything like that um so yeah it's an odd pairing to be sure um but yeah it's I it's certainly the Nets may have made it quite clear in their negotiations with Kyrie that they are not at all certain how much they can trust them because they didn't, they never even talked about you know, a full five year max deal, which they, That's which right. he was eligible for. That's right. It was always kind of like, well, we'll do, you know, a shorter deal. We'll do less money, but we're not going to give you the full boat because you haven't been here. You know, I mean, you haven't been around, you know? So, um, so yeah, it's a tough, it's tough to ask people to trust them. It's tough to ask a franchise that's really under the gun to kind of break through after three years of, of just really not doing anything. I mean, really, they haven't done anything in, in the postseason. They got to a conference semifinal 
Um, and that's it. And they lost that. You know what I mean? So they didn't even, they haven't been to a conference final, much less the finals. Um, so this grand experiment of these two playing together has yielded nothing so that's far. Right. And so the Nets, to, to, I think, understandably have said, well, you know, let's not, we're not going to give, we'll give Durant the money because he shows up every day, <laughs> you know, and, and puts up big numbers. But you were, we're not going to do that. They told him, try to make your own deal. It's okay. So I mean, there's no yeah, long term. Yeah. There's no long term there. There's no long term there. Right. You were right. mentioning about people who haven't shown up for a while. John yeah. Wall uh, comes to mind right now. John Wall in the last five years has basically not played. He's played 100 games and missed 300 games in the last five years. Yeah. The Houston Rockets paid him $44 million to not play. Now, mm-hmm. I mean... You, that's Saudi tour money. I'm taking that. Everybody's taking that. $44 million to not play. Now he's going to make $47 million this year. 41 of it is going to come from the Rockets who bought him out, and six of it is going to come from the Clippers. He is in a really good position. David, you know that I've never been a fan of John Walls because I've always thought that he used his greatest asset speed to not help the other people on the team. He just sort of ran mm-hmm. in front of everybody all the time. But there's no question that when John Wall was healthy and young, he had real talent. What, yes. Can you, can you get it five years, basically, on the shelf? Are there any yeah. fears that he'll be able to play? Well, I mean, he'll play, but the question is, will he be good? You know, and nobody, I don't think anybody expects him to be, you know, the John Wall from 2016 or 2017 when he was relatively healthy. And, and was you know an elite point guard in the, in the NBA. Question is, can he could he come in and be a good rotational piece on a really good Clippers team? Right. Yeah. If, ever, if the assumption is Ka- Kawhi will be back next year and Paul George will be back next year, they're really really good. I don't think he can start on that team because I think Reggie really? Jackson's earned that right the last two years. Okay. And I think, no, I don't even think John, who famously. Famously dissed Reggie Jackson's contract a few years ago. If you remember, it's going to be that's going to be an interesting locker room dynamic. Right, right. Um, um, I don't think even John would say I should come in and start over Reggie Jackson, who has who has earned playing time the last two years, playing very well for the Clippers. But can John be a great sixth man coming off the bench and leading their second unit? I think he still has very much can do that, has the capability of doing that. So yeah, he could do it. Um, physically, where is he? I don't know. Tony, I don't know. He hadn't played in two years. He hadn't played in three yeah. years, really. Yeah, um, so I don't know. The last time he played, which was a, you know, two seasons ago for the, for the Rockets. He, 40 games. He put up, Big put numbers. Up solid numbers. Yes, he yeah, did. the numbers are fine. Yes, he did. Um, you know, so he can play. John can get his eight assists in his sleep. You know what I mean? Like that's not, that is not the issue at all. The issue is, can he can he guard anybody? Does he want to guard anybody? Um, is he going to be in shape? And can he make enough shots, you know, off from deep to to earn his keep, to earn his minutes? So those are the questions. But can can John help them? Yeah, he could help them. Sure, absolutely. It's an interesting thing to me. He's like an astronaut who went to the moon and stayed on the moon for for, for five years. <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't have – he'll be 32 when the season starts. His entire, yeah. his entire resume starts with the word speed. I don't know if he's still going to have that speed. I, I, I don't know if he can learn to sort of integrate his skills with their skills, although God knows 
Kawhi Leonard is a great basketball player. Paul George may not be as good as he thinks he is, but he's real good. Um, Absolutely good, yeah. So that, all of a sudden, that team, that team looks like, and I hate to say this, the Brooklyn of the West. Because, right, I David? Think a, I think, yeah, I think that's an accurate comparison. Yes, I would say so. Sure. Now, their issues have been injuries. That's been their problem the last two years. Right. Is that they've had real debilitating season-long injuries to deal with. With their with their most important players, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. I mean, you can't. That's right. You can't get around that. I mean, he, you know, it's an ACL, and it's you know, those are those are serious injuries, and and Kawhi missed the whole season last year. Um, but all indications are they should be back and, and healthy next year. And and when those two were together and playing, really good. The Clippers were a really really good basketball team. As you would expect, and I would expect going forward, you know, forget John, they should just be right back at the top of the discussion in the West next year. So let us move to one other person, because the common thread here, Kyrie Irving getting $36.5 million, John Wall getting $47 million, Russell Westbrook opted in. Of course he opted mm-hmm. in. Of course yeah. he did. Someone is going to pay him $47 million. It was a stunning development. Yes, yeah. he <laughs> I watched Russell Westbrook on the Wizards and thought, Man, the guy gives 100% effort all the time. He's really yeah. great. He's a, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. His numbers will get him there. Yeah. Pablo pointed out something to me yesterday that, that he excels on teams that don't win, but teams that do win, he may not. Now, he was on a team that won in Oklahoma City. It didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that, that got, to the, got to the finals. Got to the he, finals, yep. But it is possible that he's one of those guys that can't win with a lot of talent around him because he needs the ball. It did not work at all with the Lakers. It's hard for me to imagine, David, that he can go through another season with LeBron James like this, right? I, I, I you know, I had hoped that the pursuit of a, a the, the legitimate chance to win a championship with LeBron James and, and Anthony Davis would would compel Russell to kind of understand he had to change a little. He didn't. Not a lot, Tony, just a little, and he didn't change at all. <laughs> now, part of that was I don't think he respected, and this is always the issue with Russ, I don't think he respected the coach at all. Um, we will see if he respects Darvin Ham. We, I, the only way we can know that is to see them in games together and see how that works. Um, but he did clearly clashed with, with uh, Frank Vogel. Um, but you know, for it, it, it's just such a difficult with him and LeBron because they both have to have the basketball Always. for them to be at their best. Yes, 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 yes. And and they're all and they're both really good with the basketball in their hands. By the way, like you know, look, you know, is not a terrible point guard. He's a scoring point guard. He's going to look to score most of the time, but he does pass it. It's not like he doesn't pass it at all. Um, but he has to have the ball, Tony. He is not a guy that's going to spot up and go to the opposite corner and wait. It's just not it's, not, it's never been his game. It's not his game today. It's not, it's not ever going to be his game. And so how do he and LeBron play together on a basketball court? I still don't know how they do it. There's lots of, you know, theories about, well, just put him in the dunker spot and he can screen and all those. Yeah, all that sounds nice, but try to. Let's have that meeting with Russell Westbrook where you tell him, yeah, I need you to screen away and then just, you know, you're not going to touch the ball for multiple possessions and you'll catch it on the third, third rotation. You know, like, come on, that's not, 
he's not going to go for that. It's a very, and so I don't know any other way but to, to stagger their minutes as much as possible, which means Russell has to come off the bench, which is another good conversation. That I'd, be, I'd be very curious to be there when you tell Russell Westbrook he's coming off the bench, right, making $47 million. So it's a tough sell. I'm, a, I'm quite skeptical that it could ever work between the two of them. And I don't think it's personal. I just think it's the way that they both play. It would be the same as if, you know, Chris Paul was playing with LeBron. He needs the ball, Tony. Like, that's yeah. Yeah. what Chris Paul does. He's a guy that has to have the ball in his hands to be effective. So, um, and, but so does LeBron. And LeBron's shown how great he can be with the ball in his hand and with players that can, that, that can make shots around them. So I understand why the Lakers lean into LeBron on that. It's so weird to me. Russell Westbrook, you know, he has more triple-doubles than anybody in history. He is a machine, a statistics machine. But he has taken the big heat for this. Everybody has blamed Russell Westbrook for this. Blame the Lakers. Don't blame Russell Westbrook. I'm not even saying blame LeBron. Blame the fact right. that you, you cannot put these two people on the court together. It's crazy. Well, so I would I would not I would say LeBron has to take some responsibility for this because right. he advocated for this trade. That's right. <laughs> and they have to do what LeBron says. So they you know, yeah. I don't think you know, they had a trade on the table which would have gotten them Buddy Heald, which would have been a much better fit with LeBron than, than Russell, just because Buddy Heald's a great shooter, an elite level shooter. And so if the LeBron sucks the defense to one side, Buddy Heald's gonna be wide open to the other. And that deal was basically done and LeBron said, Hey, hey wait, let's do Westbrook instead. They did, and it didn't work. So LeBron's got to own that too. But everybody else has got to own it. You know, Rob Link has got to own it. Jeannie Buss has to own it. LeBron has to own it. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you, David Aldridge. Okay, boys Tony. and girls, having his own David Aldridge moment every moment of his life. <laughs> uh, we'll take a break. Steve Sands will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. The Tony Kornheiser Show. Hideki Matsuyama with his majors win in 21 is probably the greatest golfer from the land of the rising sun. But the very first Japanese golfer to win on the PGA. And no sir, it's no joke, he was named Isao Aoki. In 80, Jack Nicholas won the Masters by two strokes. He, the tournament record broke. He beat his Sawayoki. In 04, at the Hall of Fame, in a ceremony hardly low key, the commissioner stood and spoke. He, honoring his Sawayoki. The very first Japanese golfer to win on the PGA. And no sir, it's no joke, he was named Isao Aoki.
Dan Byrne, brilliant, <laughs> who writes, I had to write a song about Isa Isao Aoki after he kept coming up in crossword puzzles I was doing. <laughs> I'm sure you understand. Right? Right? Plays yes. in Steve Sands, who's covered all of these people. Um, let us start with this. The first Saudi tour event in the United States is upcoming beginning tomorrow, I believe. It's in Oregon. What are your thoughts and expectations? about? It's different. It's not London. It's not. It's different when it's in the United States, I think, but maybe I'm wrong. I love the New York Times crossword puzzle. Yeah. Love to do it every day. I've never once had any kind of thought that goes through the mind of Dan Burns. <laughs> Just absolutely remarkable, Dan. Um, Pumpkin Ridge. So Tiger Woods won one of his three U.S. amateurs at Pumpkin Ridge. Uh, Pumpkin Ridge has a long uh, story past. The U.S. Women's Open was played there as well. Uh, going head-to-head -head against a PGA Tour event tomorrow, Tony. Uh, that's that's going to be something. And it's also going to be streaming at the same time that the PGA Tour television window is going on. Uh, there's another you know caveat to that. Uh, they've got a, a few more players than the last time we spoke uh, from the PGA Tour. Patrick Reed, Brooks Kepka, Matthew Wolf, uh, Carlos Ortiz, Pat Perez uh, making their debuts. I don't know. There's a lot of momentum uh, on that side right now, uh, Tony. A lot of momentum for Live Golf. Uh, the PGA Tour event this week is the John Deere. Right. I always make fun of the John Deere. It's, you know, it's not... It's not the Masters, the John Deere. It's it's really not. Do you think that's deliberate on the Saudi tour uh, to just go against the John Deere? I, I think the way they set their schedule, Tony, was made more because of the way the major championships uh, throughout the calendar were set. Um, I think they wanted to go, you know, against certain events, and certainly, I think the John Deere Classic was was ripe for live golf to go head to head mm -hmm. against. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, there's no question that it was done on purpose in that regard. There's another week. Uh, the Scottish Open is next week. Now, that's a co-sanctioned event between the PGA Tour and what was the European Tour. It's called the DP World Tour uh, now. And the DP World Tour announced last week that they would not allow the live golf right. guys right. to play in that Scottish Open because it's co-sanctioned by the PGA Tour. So when you originally look at the schedule, Tony, if you play – this week, then you essentially had a chance to play next week before going to St. Andrews in the Open Championship, which is the following week. That's probably why they set the schedule for the Portland event to go head-to-head -head against the John Deere Classic this week. Okay. You mentioned Pumpkin Ridge. It's a, it's a name that I remember. Yeah. Um, if, what happens if, you, if you, you're an American golf course and you say to the Saudi Tour, you can play here, we'll welcome you, you can play here. Down the road, what do you think the PGA Tour does? Do they take vengeance on those courses and never put an event there? I think vengeance is a little light. Maybe they take a flamethrower <laughs> to, to the entire operation. Uh, I don't think it's a mistake at all that if you remember, like, say, five, six years ago, remember Doral? Remember how big Doral used to be on the PGA yes. Tour? Yes. Um, and do you remember who bought Doral? I'm just trying to take a guess. Ago? It was Donald Trump. Correct. 
And then do you remember what happened to the Doral event that had a PGA Tour event every year since, like, you know, 1748? Yeah, it's it, gone. Yeah, it's gone. It went it went over the wall and was played <laughs> in Mexico, um, was the joke on the PGA Tour. Live Golf is going to be hosted by two Donald Trump courses. That's right. One of them in Bedminster and one of them at Doral later this year. Um, I don't think it's any mistake that he got involved with the Live Golf because he feels like he was burned by the PGA Tour, um, however many years ago it was, five or six years ago, when they left Doral uh, after all those years. Um, Pumpkin Ridge probably would never be able to host a PGA Tour event anyway just because of infrastructure and logistics. The size of the golf course is not a big golf course. Um, they've never had a PGA Tour event there. Um, the others probably will never have a chance either anymore. I don't think the PGA Tour uh, has any interest whatsoever uh, in any of the golf courses that are in the United States anyway that are going to be hosting uh, these live golf events, not only because they don't love the golf courses, Tony, but also because now that they've gotten in bed with live, the PGA Tour will, will have right. nothing to do with them. Um, you mentioned uh, Brooks Kepka. The big, the big catch originally was Phil Mickelson, then Brooks Kepka. He's got four majors. I mean, he's he's a guy. Now, Matthew Wolf, Carlos Ortiz, Pat Perez. I don't know that they have any impact, but I take it from what you said that you think that you know the the Saudi tour is taking a lot of eggs out of the basket of the PGA, and it's beginning to mount up. Yes and no. Uh, if it's possible to have both of those in the same answer. Yes, they are continuing with the slow drip of, of players going over there. Does Carlos Ortiz uh, make a difference to the American audience as far as the field and, and television viewing and Pat Perez and Matthew Wolf? No, not even Patrick Reed, uh, per se, and, and probably not even Brooks Kepka per se. Um, Brooks has four majors. Uh, but is he a, a big star on the PGA Tour? No. Eh, no. You could argue that he's not, um, based upon you know his personality and how much he gives to the audience. Uh, you would probably say no. I, I still think Tony that there hasn't. Maybe I'm wrong, and, and you and Michael and the others could, could could say the other side. They haven't gotten anybody yet who has been a surprise. Uh, they haven't gotten anybody yet who is of the core star young on the PGA Tour, meaning right. Colin Morikawa, these five, Colin Morikawa, John Rahm, Rory McIlroy, Justin Thomas, and Jordan Spieth. Right. If you got one of those five, Tony, that would be a shocker to everybody in golf and sports. They haven't gotten anybody yet who you think, oh, wow, I, I can't believe he went. Um, and if that happens, then, then maybe the narrative changes. But until that happens, I think that the slow drip of the players who they are getting, who are, who, by the way, are world-class players, uh, but they're basically, you know, depth of field players. You know, guys who you think are going to play a PGA Tour event you might see on TV or might see in person uh, if you're in town that particular week. Uh, but if they, if they get one of those other five guys, that to me changes the narrative. But so far, they, they've gotten everybody who most people thought would go and do it. I thought and made this comment on television last week when it was announced that Nick Faldo was stepping away from CBS. I said it wouldn't surprise me at all if you saw him with a national television deal doing the Saudi tour. Well, I read right. in Golf Magazine yesterday that he said, there's no way I'm going to do this. And he ripped the tour. 
And he said, you know, Norman and I are not friends, and no, I don't expect to ever do that. Did that surprise you at all, His the strength of his comments? The only reason it didn't, Tony, uh, and you can appreciate this, is... You know him. Uh, I, I, not only do we know Nick, um, I, I've been at dinner with him a bunch in the last, like, six weeks, uh, and he told us a couple months ago that he was doing that, uh, that he was going to retire. Uh, it just wasn't announced until last week. Uh, and he was the first person to tell me something that I had not yet heard from any player or former player about Liv. I was in the booth with him about three, maybe four weeks ago at the Memorial, at Jack Nicholson's Memorial Tournament, and we were all at dinner. Uh, but not all of us, but a few of us were at dinner, and he was saying, it's an exhibition to him. It's yeah, not that's competition. What he said. That's right. That's right. It's not competition. And, and he said this. There's no cameras around. This is us. You know, a couple glasses and a, and a big steak in front of us, talking about it. And and Nick kept saying, and I kept saying to him, Nick, are you telling me if you were Nick Faldo in the 80s and 90s, number one player in the world, and you had an opportunity to get 100, 150, 200 million dollars, you wouldn't do it? He said, I'm telling you, I know it's hypothetical, but I'm telling you I wouldn't do it because it's not competition to him. It's an exhibition. It's 48 guys, the same 48 guys, playing in a shotgun start over 54 holes, not 72 holes. And he said none of it sits well with him from a competitive standpoint. He said, of course, the money is outrageous. And at certain points in certain careers, yes, go ahead and take the money. If you're Lee Westwood, Phil Mickelson, you're 49 and 52 years of age, Ian Poulter, Pat Perez, upper 40s guys can't compete against the PGA Tour players anymore. Take the money. Get out of here. If you're Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka, you know, any of these young guys, Carlos Ortiz, Matthew Wolf, to Nick Faldo, who is one of the great competitors of all time, six majors, Hall of Fame, great, great player. He said, no thanks. He said, I just wouldn't do it. I think I'd get bored. I know I'd have all the money in the world, but that's not why you get into it in the first place. He doesn't begrudge them for taking the money. He's just saying in his, in his case, he thinks competitively it just wouldn't get his juices flowing whatsoever, and he wouldn't do it. It's interesting. I, I read the quotes, and I was very interested. I'll get you out of here on this. You were no, the... the answer is no. There was no way he was going to take a job right. uh, with right. golf. But he told us that a long time ago. When I read that last week or the other day, I, I, I hmm. kind of chuckled. Um, just just on, on this notion, you were at the Hartford tournament last week, I assume. And, um... Yep. I felt bad for Thagala. I mean, you know, and that would have been a nice win. That would have been a really nice win. And and I don't is that traumatizing? I guess he's too young to be traumatized by that because he hadn't won before to put it in the sand and and you know double the last hole, almost make the putt. But what happens to him in the near future? Do you think he's a really really good player? And by the way, he's a terrific kid. Great talker. Is, oh, yeah. He's, he's great talker. He's a great talker, Tony. He's, he's really accessible. He's a really nice kid. His father's always out there kind of cheering and having fun in a really good way, uh, not getting in the way. Uh, we've seen people in, in tennis and golf and other parents of other sports do the same thing. Sahith uh, Sagala's father's not like that. He's fantastic. So is Sahith. We've talked about this before, Tony. There's a word in golf that, that you hear often when things like this happen. It's called scar tissue. Yeah. Scar tissue builds in sports, uh, especially in individual sports. 
happens in tennis at Grand Slams. It happens in golf uh, all the time. He came close to winning in Phoenix, uh, in Scottsdale, the, the, the WM Phoenix Open. Um, had a bad break there on the 71st hole uh, and then lost in a playoff. And then what happened to him on Sunday was his own fault. He, he shouldn't have hit a driver. He should have hit three wood. Um, but you learn through mistakes. You know, I, I, I've talked to so many professional athletes over the years, especially in golf, who will tell you that the best players, that the ones who are the, the, the toughest mentally, are the ones who learn through adversity, learn through mistakes, learn through losses. That they remember the losses more than they remember the wins. And I think Sahith will be perfectly fine. He'll understand what happened there on the 72nd hole. And you've got to slow down. You've got to have the right choice uh, when you're up one and you're going to hit a driver in a certain spot versus a three-wood. He didn't get away with it. He lost. And I think he'll learn from it. He's a really nice kid, like I said. He's also a very smart kid. Uh, has a high golf acumen. Uh, I think Sahith will be perfectly fine. And you would love him, Tony. Not only is he a great talker, but he's just a bright young man. Uh, he's got a lot of wherewithal about him. Uh, outside of just golf. Uh, he's a fantastic kid, and I think he's going to be a big credit uh, to the PGA Tour for a long time. But he, need, he needs to get that, that first win yeah, out of the way because Sunday was, was painful. That was a very, very difficult loss. Thank you, Steve. Talk soon, I know. You got it, Tony. Good luck with those pencils and uh, the scorecards. It was, it was real easy to get those at a U.S. Open on a Sunday morning, Tony. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> I appreciate it very much once I get them in my hand. In my hand. Steve Sands, boys and girls. We'll take a break. We will have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews or coverage of all the biggest stories in the nba our new show is the place to be five days a week download and follow beyond the arc on apple podcasts spotify and wherever you get your favorite podcasts you're listening you're listening to the tony kornheiser show he's orange and balding what takes that a scalding no need to send tribute he has cash to spare but if you throw down for sweets from your hometown, a big box of that, you can feel free to share. Gummy bears, 12 different flavors if you really care. That Haribo crap simply can't compare to Albany's gummy bears. It's not a mystery that Tone's got a history of searching for cottage cheese and grapefruit juice. Waistlines are growing, so take pride in knowing You said they're the best, now we all know it's true Gummy bears, the big bad Carol stuck her face in there And say them now at Safeway and everywhere You think to buy gummy bears Albany's gummy bears Alright, there's a story behind this, obviously That's Jerry Negrelli singing and yes. Elliot Olshansky provided the lyrics. Ever since Jared, the gummy bear guy, wrote in from Terre Haute to proclaim the superiority of Albany's to Haribo, I found myself humming the theme from the late 80s Disney cartoon series Adventures of the Gummy Bears. I doubt you ever saw it. I did not. But the Oregon Trail generation has fond memories 
has fond memories of the show and its theme song, which was sung by Joseph Williams, son of John Williams, yes, that John Williams, who went on to become the lead singer of Toto and the singing voice of the adult Simba in The Lion King. As a result, I was able to recruit Jerry Negrelli to record my rewrite of the theme, although he finished before I could rewrite the lyrics to include mention of the champagne gummy bears that Sansie showed you. <laughs> Best regards from Suffolk County, where I too have discovered the wonders of Albany's gummy bears, having procured them at Stop and Shop, ShopRite, and Five Below. It's and it's great song that Jerry sang. Yes, we need uh, Jared to send us more Albany's gummy bears. <laughs> right. Have you tried the gummy worms? Did no, just... I've never really liked gummy worms. They're too much to chew on. Yeah, but there's more flavor. Yeah, I've I, I've been a gummy bears guy. Anyway, um, you want to do the Bethesda bagels? Bethesda bagels, we love them. You will as well. Just go to bethesdabagels.com forward a location in the DC area nearest you. Then pop on in, and you'll be thrilled. So that's about it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, Spider Murphy played this tenor saxophone. Little Joe was blowing on the slide trombone. The drummer boy from Illinois went crash, boom, bang. The whole rhythm section was the Purple Gang. That's probably Elvis Presley, kids. Yes. That's my guess. Yes. What's the name of that song? Jail Let's Rock. Yeah, Let's Rock. Everybody, Let's Rock. Thanks to our guests today, David Aldridge, Steve Sands. Thanks to today's sponsors, MeUndies, Solo Stove, X-Chair. Um, you should listen to the MeUndies read because we interrupted a couple of times. <laughs> and remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. From Shad, a haiku. Sauntering around, belly full of daylilies, eat it, Kornheiser. No, eat it, deer. The deer ate it. He or she, probably a she. Probably she. You don't see bucks around. You see does around a lot. Sure. A rock from the Soviet Safeway. That's not That's not my Safeway. That's not the refugee Safeway. No. That's a different Safeway. One deer question. Did the deer have one of your yes. daylilies behind its ear? That would be so funny. <laughs> from Patrick Sitter in Sioux Falls, sleeve. South Dakota. Elvis is still alive, and he's using your easy pass. Sweet revenge. <laughs> That's who it is. Um, from Matthew in Greensboro, North Carolina, I've been fascinated by your recent discussions on Elvis since you, like Bob Ryan to the sport of basketball, have seen nearly all of the great acts of popular American music over the past 65 years or so. I specifically remember your May 13, 2020 episode. It was your first episode after Little Richard passed, and your discussion about him, Chuck Berry, and Bo Diddley and their distinct sounds was one of my favorite segments you've done. I just have a question, being a millennial and all, as I was curious of someone who saw them all. Who, in your opinion, was the biggest musical superstar? I figure the triumvirate is a debate among Elvis, the Beatles, and Michael Jackson. But since you saw all of them and are an avid fan of music, I wanted to get your opinion on this. I figured it was Michael, Michael Jackson. I would have said the Beatles because of my age when the Beatles came into prominence. Sure. I was a little too young for Elvis. I was a little too old for Michael Jackson, and I would have said the Beatles. Tony Beeson has sent a photo of himself at the at the Safeway, the, the, at the refugee Safeway. Sometimes in life there's a perfect confluence of events which lead to something amazing. Fellow little Lee Gordon and I made a pilgrimage to the refugee Safeway during this past jing weekend's Jingle Fest event and came across an Ingleside van in the Safeway yep. parking lot. Can't miss it. Yep. It's just so great. That's yep. just so wonderful. That Jay say hi to Saka? Chad is writing now, and he's not just doing haikus. At the Jingle Golf event on Friday, a donation was made to the golf course to anonymously pay for the rounds of junior golfers. We call it Jingle Golf It Forward. At future Jingle Golf tournaments, we will continue to raise money, and each golfer will get the chance to make the same type of donation at their local course. Littles helping Littles golfers. That's very nice. Isn't that nice? Uh, from Steve Lipton. Uh, yes, I returned, hope, I returned home safely from Jingle Fest. Thank you for asking. Below is a picture of the 2022 Jingle Fest Jinglers holding a Stonehenge prop and giving our TK salutes. KJ uh, Onstad, Tony Basin, Steve Lipton, Jerry and Michelle Negrelli, Joe Arrow, Louis Crocco, and Megan Kelly Crocco. And it's 
just wonderful, and I pass that around yes. the table here. And by the way, because I, I guess you said that on the show. I hope everyone gets home safely. Yes. So we've had about 500 emails from said I got home safely. So thank I'm you for Phil all Phil West that. in Lexington, Kentucky. I must confess to the following. During my senior year of high school in a small town of Harrisburg, Illinois, not Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I mistakenly committed some light election fraud. Let me explain. <laughs> One Tuesday in the spring of 2013, there was a local election being held. Side note, our high school gym was a county polling place, a fact whose importance will soon become apparent. I was doing the morning announcements at our high school and ended the announcements by encouraging eligible students and teachers to vote for a fellow senior who was running for our town library board. A vote for Jose Durbin is a vote for literacy, I proudly exclaimed. As soon as I finished the sentence, our principal immediately cut off the intercom and shouted at me incredulously. What are you doing? You can't do that. I was very confused until he explained to me that the intercom also extended to our high school gym, where crowds of county <laughs> voters were gathered, all of whom could hear my announcement. He further explained this was illegal election, electioneering and that the results of our entire county election could be nullified, which is sure. totally true. Yep. Fortunately, my misdeed was short-lived after a call to the State Board of Elections in Springfield reassured our county board of elections that we were in the clear since there's no way a kid could intentionally be that stupid. <laughs> Literacy lost the day as Jose Durbin lost his race. As an afterward, Jose now works as a campaign staffer for Darren Bailey, an Illinois Republican candidate for governor. I like to think that somewhere in central Illinois, Jose will listen and hear this and experience a David Aldrich moment of his own, hanging Chad edition. Also, thanks for reading. I must go now. Large curds await. <laughs> Ted in Richmond, would Moses Malone be a good pitch man for X-Chair? He does like those numbers. Moses isn't alive. Fo fo fo. Mo yeah, fo fo fo. Moses isn't with us anymore. No longer signing. He's not signing. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Dylan Vandergriff. Dear Mr. Tony, on your latest episode, I had a listener write in from Atlanta, Texas, and had my first David Aldridge moment. While I live in Tyler, Texas now, I am from a small town called Maud, which is about 10 minutes from Atlanta, and I've had many a meal in that small town. Anyway, tell Blaine from Atlanta, and he's not the only little around East Texas. Thanks for the amazing content and making me a miserable Nats fan just like yourself. And one more. Uh, well, no, two more. Joe Rudden in Mount Airy, Maryland. Normally, I would try to write something smart or funny and usually fail. I'm not even going to try. Just going to say Jessica Mitchell. I mean, come on. What are we talking about? How great is she? When she wins a Grammy, I hope she shouts, uh, Lachiserie. I actually went to Alexa the other day and asked to get Jessica Mitchell, and I couldn't. I mean, she was on some sort of paywall situation. Oh, okay. One more, Jay, uh, Jay Devine in Montreal, missing clutch golf shots and your grandkid's fifth birthday on the same weekend. That's how you double down. I'll sit back and listen to the emails about this forever. Let me just tell you something. It's more that you campaigned to bring the other grandfather with you. <laughs> So I, I set figured, up a trip. I felt we were safe at that point because we were both there. Sure, and nobody could get blamed. Yeah, I went out yesterday to play golf. I I, I took so many shots in the sand. I, I mean, after three misses in the sand, I just picked up. Sure. I mean, just three misses. I did that on six different holes. I shot over a hundred yesterday, mm. and that's a gift over a hundred because I just picked up. I can't. Get out of the sand. You'd probably pick up some distance if you use this technique off the tee. That's my punishment. You know, I'm hitting the ball. I'm not hitting the sand. I'm being punished for missing Bootsy's birthday. Yeah. And, yes, appropriating chant to Lee Goodman. <laughs> Figuring there was strength in numbers. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. Now, don't you tell me you don't remember me because I sure as heck fire remember you. I say the opposite of what I say I say the 
Hideki Matsuyama with his majors win in 21 is probably the greatest golfer from the land of the rising sun. But the very first Japanese golfer to win on the PGA And no sir, it's no joke, he was named Isao Aoki In 80, Jack Nicholas won the Masters by two strokes He, the tournament record broke, he beat Isao Aoki in 04 at the Hall of Fame In a ceremony hardly low-key The commissioner stood and spoke he Honoring his how Aoki The very first Japanese golfer To win on the PGA And no sir, it's no joke He was named Isao Aoki da 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 da